Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Most of us agree, regardless of our religious or political bent, that we're here. We believe that this universe exists, that man is literally a being, that experiences are real, etc., etc. Now, there are some who believe we're nothing but a simulation, just a computer-based program that's running its programmed process. Others believe that we're something more akin to the Matrix, all hooked up to wires and tubes and a pod of goo. Still others believe that this is just all a dream. Everything we know, or that we think we know, everything we are, it's all an illusion. Most of us simply won't buy into any, any of these alternate and generally crazy ideas about this life. That said, regardless of your view on this existence, what I think most of us can agree on, oh, or at least I, I hope that most of us can agree on, is that there is a segment of society that is living in a delusion. This appears to manifest itself in various ways for various segments of society, depending on the topic at hand, and it makes strange bedfellows of the politically elite and the politically agnostic, the rich and the poor, the degreed educators and the barely educated. This delusion appears to be based on what you want to be true for whatever reason you want it to be true, regardless of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. In fact, in many cases, this appears to be a willing delusion. They can't see the facts because they don't want to see the facts, because those facts are very inconvenient for their agenda. On today's episode, first we're going to smoke them if you got them, because there's no reason that I know of that we shouldn't, and then we'll learn how to justify that major purchase we've been eyeballing. And after the bumper, you can make your own decision about how delusional I am. So grab some rolling papers and a handful of that special lettuce, and throw that calculator away. Your math isn't any good here. And whether we're here or whether we're not, let's all just agree to agree that here we go. Beelzebub's Basil Bud, chronic, the cure, dab, dope, enchanted salad, herb, nug, the devil's lettuce, poofy goofy. Yeah, we're talking about weed, Mary Jane, marijuana. There are some fantastic nicknames, I gotta be honest. Notice one of the nicknames is dab. Yeah, I know. Even certain members of my own family, if you can believe it, mock me for this, but that's why I don't like the stupid dabbing trend that thankfully has died down to pretty much just a joke at this point. The dab is actually an exaggerated motion of sneezing into the crook of your elbow because apparently smoking weed makes you sneeze or something like that. So all those pictures you have of your little precious angels dabbing and it was so funny. Yeah, future weed smokers. Probably. That's... Not confirmed. More research and study needs to be done. Speaking of more research and study needing to be done, we're just kind of legalizing marijuana all over the place right now. You know, not federally, but state by state. As of June 2023, it appears that 38 states plus D.C. have legalized medicinal marijuana, and 24 of those have legalized recreational use as well. 
It's actually a little bit more complex than that due to the fact that federally marijuana is still illegal. So right now we have four states where marijuana in any form is totally legal. That's South Carolina, Kansas, Wyoming, and Idaho. Another two states haven't legalized it in any form, but they've decriminalized the use and possession. This is a technicality, saying that if you're caught, usually possessing under a certain amount, the state won't prosecute. But it's still illegal, so don't do it. Those states are North Carolina and Nebraska. There are eight states that have legalized medicinal use, but not decriminalized recreational use beyond that. Those include Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Florida, Alabama, Arkansas, Oklahoma, South Dakota, and Utah. Another states have legalized medicinal use and have decriminalized recreational use and possession. So again, not legalized, just decriminalized the recreational use. Those are New Hampshire, Ohio, Mississippi, Louisiana, Minnesota, North Dakota, and Hawaii. Then 22 states plus D.C. have fully legalized just everything. Here we go. Maine, Vermont, New York, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, Michigan, Illinois, Missouri, Montana, Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Alaska. And finally, we have seven states that have decriminalized the use of THC-containing CBD oil for medicinal purposes only, but only the oil and only medicinally while any other use medicinally or recreationally is illegal, not decriminalized, illegal. Those are Wisconsin, Iowa, Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, and Texas. And of course, if you're over a certain amount in a decriminalized state, you can be prosecuted. And if you cross a state line from a legal to an illegal state, this would most likely be prosecuted as a federal crime, guilty of interstate commerce or something like that, which the feds love to prosecute, by the way. And you thought gun ownership, use and carry, along with state-to-state reciprocity and legality of different types of ammunition by state was confusing? Or maybe you didn't. I don't know. Either way, this is kind of a mess. That said, this is really what the founders intended. Limit the number of rules and laws nationally. Allow the states to experiment on their own. We're supposed to be a collection of experiments, 50 of them now, that try things while other states watch to see what happens. And then they either adopt the stuff that works or they run away far and fast from the stuff that doesn't. So from a conceptual viewpoint, this process is fine. I came across this article found on MarketWatch via MSN.com headline, MasterCard moves to stop cannabis purchases with its debit cards. And my question to you is, is this okay? Now, let me give you my view of marijuana just right up front and realize that this may not match your view. It might, but it may not. I think recreational use should be illegal. No exceptions, no decriminalization. It should be absolutely illegal in every state at all times in any amount. We're going to get into this in a few minutes, but no, it's not the same as or better than smoking cigarettes. No, it's not the same or better than drinking alcohol. Yes, I realize that making it illegal would be along the lines of mandating morality. I think I have plausible reasons for believing it should be illegal, but if you don't agree with them, 
then I guess I'll just be a hypocrite on my view that we shouldn't generally mandate morality. Like I said, we'll get into this in a few. At the same time, I'm not 100% there, but I'm very open to the idea of the use of marijuana or CBD oils or whatever for medicinal purposes. There are some caveats with synthetics and specially bred and crossbred varieties, but from a naturally occurring plant type perspective, well, it's a naturally occurring plant. Now, there's an argument to be made that what it is today is not what it was before the fall, before sin corrupted what was very good, but I think there's also an argument that could be made that it's exactly what was originally designed for use before or after the fall as, say, a natural painkiller or something. I, I really don't know. We know that before the fall, the intent for human life would be to live eternally, but could humans get injured? I mean, surely prior to sin, accidents could still happen. If you had a raptor dinosaur step on your foot with one of those big toe-talon thingies, I can't imagine the body was impervious to injury or pain. We know that as part of the curse, God told Adam that the ground would be cursed, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. We also know that the curse on women through Eve was that God would surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So is pain introduced here? Or did Adam already know what pain was? For Eve, God said that he would multiply the pain in childbirth, not add pain. If you multiply zero pain by anything, you still get zero. But if pain was minimal and it was multiplied, well, that's different. Bottom line, I just don't know. I have to believe that pain was possible prior to sin. But what we do know is that marijuana was created by God. So to me, the use of non-modified natural herb or oils seems like something we'd at least want to pursue an experiment with very carefully, very controlled. The problem we have today is that just about everyone has a something that they could need marijuana for, and there are more than enough doctors, and I use that term loosely, that are more than happy to prescribe it for you. Now, if you disagree... Let me bring in Mr. Opioids to the conversation. See, opioids, I'd argue, have a use as well as long as they're carefully controlled by medical professionals. Again, they've shown to help people and massively destroy other people. And these are pretty much all synthetically produced, mostly just chemicals and compounds smashed together into a tablet or put into a capsule or whatever you do with them. But if you're okay with things like codeine, Vicodin, Percocet, Hydrocodone, Morphine, Oxycodone, or any of so many other opioids, then I'd argue you shouldn't be firmly set against the use of naturally occurring plants for medical use. But if you're still not convinced, that's fine. That's your call. Personally, I don't foresee a time when I would personally, like I said, request marijuana. But then again, I don't foresee a time where I'd want morphine either. Although admittedly, both of those times could potentially come. Back to this article. Depending on your worldview, your initial reaction to the headline of MasterCard not allowing cannabis purchases with their debit cards was either very positive, <laughs> good, it's about time, or negative, well, who do they think they are? So, what exactly is MasterCard doing? Well, the opening paragraph pretty much lays it out. Quote, MasterCard Inc. has demanded that U.S. financial institutions block cannabis purchases on its debit cards, marking another setback for the legal marijuana industry. A spokesperson said, quote, as we were made aware of this matter, we quickly investigated it. In accordance with our policies, we instructed the financial institutions that offer payment services to cannabis merchants and connects them to MasterCard to terminate the activity. The federal government considers cannabis sales illegal, so these purchases are not allowed on our systems. 
So see, since weed is viewed the same as heroin, a Schedule One substance under federal law, well, financial institutions are apparently not allowed to process financial transactions. It makes sense, right? Except, as various representatives of various cannabis companies point out, it's legal in all sorts of forms in nearly every state. And it's a legitimately recognized business that pulls in $3.7 billion of tax revenue, at least in 2022. The short article wraps up by pointing out that there is currently a bill in Congress that would allow pot companies to use the banking system while still not legalizing or rescheduling the substance, but it's not moving through very fast and really nothing is expected to change in this Congress. So now that you know why MasterCard took this action, what do you think? Initially, did you hope that it was some sense of morality that briefly ran unchecked through the credit issuer? And then you shook your head and laughed and laughed because that's not a thing they do. So should they be allowed to process transactions or is doing this okay? I mean, I guess if I were forced to make a decision, I'd say that they should be allowed to process transactions. The federal government is more than happy to take the tax revenue, so they've de facto told the suppliers that they are a legitimate business. You may say, no, that this is a good thing that they're doing this. We don't need to be promoting this kind of evil. Well, what if the feds decided that cigarettes are illegal? Which they could. They're heading that direction. But again, the tax revenue is way too tasty. Alcohol? Still okay with this? Guns? Oh, uh-huh. See, that feeling you just felt is called conflict. The feds would absolutely make guns illegal. All guns, if they could. They just can't, at least for right now. What if they made it illegal to process financial transactions to hate groups? You do know that they'd classify any church that dare speak out against abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, whatever, as hate groups, right? How many churches are utilizing online billing services or automatic debiting for their offerings? Now, I still have a checkbook, and a handful of times every single year I'll write some checks, but that process is dying out. It's online bill pay, auto debit, debit cards, chips in the hands or foreheads. I mean, that's how people are paying and being paid these days. The problem we've got is that, as we all know, we're a divided nation. And this divide isn't what it used to be. This divide is deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a gulf that's forming deep and wide. You can't be heretical with a Sunday school song, right? As much as I disagree with mandating morality, as much as I agree with the founders that each state should be an experiment unto themselves, the reality is we're a nation, 50 states, but one nation. And certain things like the banking industry is federally regulated. So when you get into a situation like this where the feds make laws, but they won't enforce them, and the states make their own laws, and they might enforce those, but the feds will absolutely enforce the laws against the financial institutions, then we do actually need to make some federal decisions as to how we handle issues, at least from a macro level. The problem is that we're making decisions at the federal level based on income to the government. See, they don't want to enforce weed being illegal because that would hurt their tax revenue. But they'll absolutely enforce the banking rules because if MasterCard violates those rules, well, they'll be fined rather heavily, I'd imagine, thus more revenue. Insert uh, the love of money is the root of all evil reference here. But assuming this country stays united, we're going to need to make some decisions as to how we treat various issues. Now, personally, I'd advocate for allowing the states to make most decisions on most things. But we need to make good decisions, informed decisions, decisions based on the real scientific method, not what passes for science today.
So let's play a layman's version of this game with regard to legalizing marijuana, shall we? The libertarian position is to legalize absolutely everything, but let the people pay for their consequences. So no tax dollar sponsored Narcan vending machines. If a private group wants to do that, that's up to them. If the druggie wants to purchase a gift basket of Narcan products, that's up to the user. Although in theory, I could agree with this. In practice, this would be a disaster. Of course, you get arguments like found a few weeks ago on the AP, again, via MSN.com, headline, Scotland wants to decriminalize drugs. The UK government just says no. Their argument was, quote, that removing criminal penalties for drug possession would allow for the provision of safe, evidence-based harm reduction services. Well, I've heard this argument before, you probably have too. A few countries have actually tried this with varying degrees of success. The premise is basically, our war on drugs isn't working, so let's go the complete opposite direction and pretend that if we just run everything through the government, the government can help. Now, would you trust our government to get this right? I know I wouldn't. I think the vast majority of humanity would agree that drugs like, say, heroin, meth, crack, not good for human consumption. The disagreement would mostly come in as to what's the best way to fight these drugs and the addictions, not if they should be fought. But with weed, it's different. Nobody's arguing that it's not a drug. Everyone agrees it's a drug. The argument is based on a couple main premises. One, is this a gateway drug or not? And two, is this more the same or less harmful as compared to smoking, chewing, or drinking? You know, the commonly accepted vices. To me, if this isn't a gateway drug, and it's the same or less harmful, then okay, legalize it if you want. If it is a gateway to harder drugs, which are almost universally agreed to be bad, or if it has an excessive risk of greater harm, then based on our findings, we need to decide if we're willing to move the goalpost of acceptable risk of harm to sell for others and then make this legal, or keep it illegal and enforce the penalties. Either way, we better be real sure before we arrive at a conclusion and take action. What we don't want to do is harm people who under normal circumstances wouldn't have been harmed because we made an uninformed decision. And while studying the issue, we need to err on the side of caution, which means it stays illegal with enforcement until a consensus decision is determined. Now, this is not what we see today in anything. God created us with both emotions and logic. We all have both of those in varying degrees. When performing an analysis like what we're talking about here, we use the scientific method, which should be devoid of emotion entirely. This is a very cold view of data only. The scientific method is a very simple process to define. After observing something, asking a question, determining a problem needs to be solved, etc., etc., after doing all your background research, you then first construct a hypothesis. This is what you believe the problem to be and what you believe the solution to the problem is. Next, you test with an experiment. Now, this could take many forms based on what your problem and proposed solution is, but this must be a controlled experiment for a specific period of time resulting in the collection of data. Then you would analyze the data. Upon completion of the experiment time frame, that data is analyzed to determine results. And then finally, you draw a conclusion. Based on the analysis performed, the conclusion will either be that the results of the experiment align with the hypothesis, or they don't. If they align, we communicate the results and proceed with the proposed solution unless or until something unexpected tells us that our proposed solution is wrong. 
If our results don't align well, or they don't align at all with our hypothesis, or after implementing the solution we discover something unexpected, we now have a collection of data and results that we utilize to form a new hypothesis, and we repeat the procedure. In the scientific method, we can never be sure about anything 100%. True science is never settled. When you hear that the science is settled on any topic, well, you've left science. There is no settled science. There is only experimental data that has not been able to disprove a hypothesis yet. Case in point, for a long time, constants like gravity and the speed of light were thought to be just that, constant. And for most of us, they are universally constant. But we know that both of those can be varied and changed based on environmental conditions. As a side note, realize this. If evolution were true, that we were all evolved from a single cell that popped into life when lightning charged scummy water, and from that point on, we're all here because of random chance and mutation, then the scientific method can't work. Evolution would not only randomize all of our perceptions of reality, our logical abilities, our emotional capacities, but it would randomize everything, everywhere, all at once. The speed of light may be this value over here, but 100 miles down the road, it may be different. Gravity may not be constant around the planet, and you and I could run the exact same experiments, obtain wildly different results, and based on our random brains, our interpretation and analyses of the results could be different to the point of being absolutely contradictory, and since everything is random, both of those results, although completely contradictory, could both be correct. The only way any scientific experimentation, any hypothesis creation, any data analysis could take place resulting in consistent, repeatable results leading us to logical actions is for a higher being to have created us in a consistent, repeatable manner. In other words, in order to work, think, act, and react relatively the same, we needed to be created based off of a specific, consistent design. Look around at the subdivision neighborhoods that are out there. Those houses don't look the same because some construction guys came in and started throwing two-by-fours, blobs of concrete, bundles of tangled-up copper wire, and a bunch of pieces of glass on a pile in the middle of an overgrown lot. A specific design was followed over and over and over, which results in houses that are identical, save for the specific options given to the new homeowner during the build and the freedom to personalize the home by the homeowner after moving in. Bottom line, evolution can be proven to be impossible based on the fact that the world works the way it does, and we can apply logic to it. Okay, back to the poofy-goofy. We, and by we, I mean the powers that be, have not performed the scientific method correctly with regard to legalization of medicinal or recreational use. Now, how can I claim this? Well, because by doing some simple searching on the interwebs, we literally have no idea if weed is beneficial, or just fine, or deadly poison, or if it's a gateway drug, or if it's non-addictive, if it's the devil's lettuce, or if it's God's blessing to mankind. When you do a search for, is marijuana a gateway drug, we get nearly infinite results. Everyone has an opinion. If you go to factcheck.org, for instance, a totally politically unbiased website, we find an article from 2015 asking this question. This was in response to Governor Chris Christie, potential presidential candidate at that time, and somehow again today, saying that he would crack down on Colorado and Washington as the two states that legalized Mary Jane sales and use, claiming that marijuana is a gateway drug. Well, they cite a study that was done in 2015, or... At least it was published in 2015. 
This study followed 6,624 people who started using cannabis prior to any other drug to see if they moved on to other illegal drugs. What they found is that over 44% of those in the study did in fact move on to stronger drugs. They also stated that if the individual had some other mental disorder, that they were more likely to move to harder drugs. Now, I'd argue chicken and the egg here. I'd say that the mental disorder is a major contributor to a person trying any drugs, but I'd have to do a study to prove that. They summarized their conclusion with, quote, a large proportion of individuals who use cannabis go on to use other illegal drugs. The increased risk of progression from cannabis use to other illicit drugs use among individuals with mental disorders underscores the importance of considering the benefits and adverse effects of changes in cannabis regulations and of developing prevention and treatment strategies directed at curtailing cannabis use in these populations. Basically, they're saying the data appears to align strongly with the hypothesis that marijuana is a gateway drug, so we should proceed with great caution. But factcheck.org says, quote, Though studies of large populations of people have indeed found that those who smoke marijuana are more likely to use other drugs, these studies show a correlation without showing causation, a commonly misunderstood phenomenon in science. In short, just because marijuana smokers might be more likely to later use, say, cocaine, does not imply that using marijuana causes one to use cocaine. <laughs> okay, well that... That's not what the conclusion said at all, actually. Now, they go on to cite some other studies that use the correlation equals causation argument, stating that just because marijuana use typically precedes harder drug use, that doesn't mean that one leads to the other. Well, this is disingenuous at best. Sure, they, they started using drugs, but that doesn't mean that's why they started using other drugs. <laughs> I mean, this is not using the scientific method. The data appears to align. Either you accept the data or you do more studies to prove or disprove. You don't make unqualified assumptions like this, you know, in order to push the preferred political agenda. If you go to the NIH website, they give a summation of data that definitely suggests the use of marijuana leads to other drug use. Quote, these findings are consistent with the idea of marijuana as a gateway drug. But then they say that it's not the majority of people, and we can see the same thing happening with alcohol and nicotine, so stop picking on weed, man. Now, to their credit, they do wrap it up with, quote, further research is needed to explore this question. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it, right? So, so right there, using the hypothesis that the enchanted salad is a gateway drug with data, results, and analysis appearing to align with the hypothesis, either more research should be done or the hypothesis should be accepted. If we accept it, then marijuana shouldn't be legalized. If we want to do more research, then marijuana shouldn't be legalized yet. And at this point, I want to throw in a caveat that I'll address later. This hypothesis and conclusion does not necessarily apply to medicinal use. That requires a completely separate hypothesis and set of tests. Moving on, let's pose another hypothesis, shall we? Marijuana use is harmful to self or others. Again, we did this completely wrong. What should happen is, for you animal lovers, cover your ears for a second. Animal tests first. Okay, you can uncover your, you can uncover your, 
<clears throat> okay. After that, you'd move to a small-scale human trial. The reality is the only way we can know how anything affects humans is to let willing humans try it. So we need to move to human trials, starting small, with increasing trial sizes, and not only for a few weeks or months. These trials need to go on likely for years to at least see what the... I mean, let's call it midterm effects are, and it could take a large number of years to determine the long-term or even generational effects. So since it's been a little over a decade since marijuana use was first legalized in the first few states, let's see what we know today. Let's start with my favorite. I found on GoodRx.com, headline, Cannabinoid Hyperemesis Syndrome and Scrometing, What You Should Know. Yeah, Cannabinoid and hyperemesis syndrome, otherwise known as CHS, will lead to severe vomiting and potentially even scrometing, which is vomiting and screaming at the same time. Which, I'll be honest, I don't toke, but I've been scrometing my entire life. So, I mean, what's this all about? Now, this article says in their key takeaway section that, quote, people who use cannabis multiple times per week for longer than a year are at highest risk of developing CHS. Now, this may require hospitalization. <laughs> okay, so vomiting and scrometing. Got it. Uh, found on SciTechDaily.com headline, New study, marijuana users three times more likely to develop peripheral artery disease. Well, this article was written at the end of July about a study of marijuana users versus the general population with regard to the vascular system. According to the CDC, 50 million Americans have used marijuana at least once, so people are starting to think that maybe we should see if that's a good idea or not. That sounds reasonable. This study looked at 30 million patients, of which 624,000 were marijuana users. 0.38% of the total were diagnosed with peripheral artery disease, but marijuana users were more than three times as likely to, to develop this as non-users but they said that they had no statistically significant increased risk for mortality. I guess I'd take issue at that point, as the average age of the patient was 37.4 years old. I mean, even my 600-pound life candidates can pull off 35 to 45 years before their body just can't take it anymore. So this is a relatively young group sampling of people. I'd be curious what the effects of PAD are as people get older. Anyway, the study suggests that marijuana users should pay attention to things like leg pain when walking, slow or no hair growth, feelings of coldness in the legs, and they should generally increase monitoring and screening as compared to non-users. So, uh, so let's add PAD to scrometing, shall we? And not just PAD, but found on ACC.org, that's the American College of Cardiology, headline, Frequent Marijuana Use Linked to Heart Disease, with a byline of, quote, Researchers caution that cannabis use is not without risk. Oh, okay. Well, this was presented in February of 2023, one of the largest, most comprehensive studies to date, which found frequent marijuana use raises the risk of coronary artery disease, or CAD, by about 33% as compared to non-users. Previous studies suggested a loose correlation between marijuana use and an increased risk of heart attack, stroke, or other cardiac issues, especially in younger people, but this study gave a more definitive connection. Okay. Scrometing, PAD, and CAD. So we're, we're starting to see a definite pattern of marijuana use and harm to self developing here. Now let's keep going. This is fun, isn't it? Found on ncbi.nim.nih.gov. Yes, it's just that easy. Headline, Harmful Effects of Smoking Cannabis, A Cerebrovascular and Neurological Perspective. 
Now, let me just quote from the abstract of this government study. Quote, Apart from being used as a medicine, cannabis or marijuana is the most widely abused recreational drug all over the world. The legalization and decriminalization of cannabis in Canada and various states of USA may be the underlying reason of the widespread popularity of it among young population. Various studies have reported about the relationship between cannabis use and different detrimental effects like cardiovascular, cerebrovascular, and neurological com complications among different age groups. Specifically, the young population is getting adversely affected by this harmful yet readily accessible recreational drug. Although the mechanism behind cannabis-mediated neurological and cerebrovascular complications has not been elucidated yet, the results of these studies have confirmed the association of these diseases with cannabis. Given the lack of comprehensive study relating these harmful complications with cannabis use, the aim of this narrative literature review article is to evaluate and summarize current studies on cannabis consumption and cerebrovascular slash neurological diseases along with the leading toxicological mechanisms. Now, you likely understood more of those words than I did, but what I gathered is that the fact that we've said, yeah, you can use it, is a leading contributing factor to people, you know, using it. I also see that they're admitting a confirmation of the connection between use and various issues in the brain and the nervous system. And to me, that doesn't sound good. But still, scrometing, PAD, CAD, cerebrovascular, and neurological issues. We're still talking about a U problem, though. Now, another division of NIH, this one being the National Institute on Drug Abuse, found on nida.nih.gov, headline, What are Marijuana's Long-Term Effects on the Brain? Well, this one speaks of a study of both animal research and a growing number of human studies that are all indicating a marijuana exposure during brain development can cause long-term or possibly permanent adverse changes in the brain. During development is defined as before birth, or after birth, or during adolescence, and adverse changes means learning, memory problems, and impulse control problems. So, you know, all of that seems fine. Hey, interesting factoid, I mean, just a shiny object moment for me, no idea why this popped in my head. Various studies are all in general agreement that the brain doesn't stop developing until around the age of 25. No idea why that random nugget would have just popped into my mind. Oh, well. Another study from March said that uh, of the 52.5 million users, 12-year-olds and older as of 2021, 35.4% were 18 to 25 years old. Oh, where have I heard that 25-year-old thing before? I don't know. I can't remember. 10.5% were 12 to 17. So about half of the users are under 25 years old. That should be fine, right? It wouldn't be legal if it wasn't fine. All right, let's see where we are here. Scrometing, PAD, CAD, cerebrovascular and neurological issues, memory, learning, and impulse control problems. I got it all so far? I think I do. Found on psychologytoday.com, headline, are depression and cannabis use linked? Now, the byline throws out the chicken or egg scenario, which is a solid question. Which issue comes first? The article says, quote, It has been well documented that using cannabis during adolescence increases the risk of psychosis, especially in vulnerable youth. In other words, those whose genetics include the risk for mental illness with psychosis, such as schizophrenia. Okay, well, well documented psychosis. 
Okay. This article published in 2019 goes on to say, quote, now a recent study indicates using marijuana regularly during adolescence is associated with depression in the young adult years. There's a risk of changing neurological development by the frequent intoxication from THC during years when brains are rapidly growing and changing. Okay. Scrometing. PAD, CAD, cerebrovascular and neurological issues, memory, learning, and impulse control problems, psychosis, and depression. In fact, also found on psychologytoday.com, headline, is marijuana a gateway drug? So, no, don't worry, I'm not going backward to that question. I'm primarily interested in a little list of short-term and long-term effects of marijuana use well into the article from 2018. Now, they call these potential effects, but let's take a look at them, shall we? Short term, memory consolidation difficulties, anxiety, paranoia, and panic attacks, increased probability of psychotic symptoms, hallucinations, decreased reaction time, increased risk of heart attack and stroke, coordination problems, which impairs things like driving, sexual dysfunction, mostly for males. <laughs> of course. Oh, okay. Some of these sound suboptimal, right? Right? But surely, in the long term, they're... F oh, wait, no, 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 no. Long term, lower IQ, especially when use starts early, poor school or work performance, impaired ability to perform complex tasks, lower life satisfaction, relationship problems, antisocial behavior such as stealing money or lying, financial difficulties, and unemployment, and addiction. Now, sure, adding all of these things up, we've got a lot of stuff that only affects the user... Few that could maybe have an effect on other people, but still, you can surely understand why our beneficent government overlords would legalize marijuana use. I mean, people want to use it, and also tax dollars, right? Hey, here's an interesting one found on sciencealert.com headline, Cannabis Use Linked to Epigenetic Changes, Scientists Discover. Now, this one just came out in July, so fresh data, get your fresh data! Admittedly, this is a small-scale study, like should have been done more than a decade ago. Quote, Using cannabis may cause changes in the human body's epigenome, a study of over 1,000 adults suggests. The epigenome functions like a set of switches activating or deactivating genes to change how our bodies function. I'm just going to read some of this article. Don't worry if you don't understand every word. You'll get the concept of what's going on. Quote, the researchers studied around 1,000 adults who had participated in a long-term previous study where they had been asked about their cannabis use over a 20-year period. Study participants provided blood samples on two occasions during that time at the 15- and 20-year points. They were aged between 18 and 30 at baseline, or year zero. Using these blood samples from five years apart, Hugh, which is one of the researchers, and her team looked at the epigenetic changes, specifically DNA methylation levels of people who had used cannabis recently or for a long time. The addition or removal of methyl groups from DNA is one of the most studied epigenetic modifications. Without changing the genomic sequence, it changes the activity of genes because it's harder for cells to read the genome instruction manual with these molecular changes in their way. Environmental and lifestyle factors can trigger these methylation changes, which can be passed on to future generations and blood biomarkers can provide information about both recent and historical exposures. Now, they make a boilerplate-type caveat that this doesn't prove anything conclusively and more studies are needed, but look at the indications. It can make genetic changes 
that can be passed to future generations. We're now talking about altering our genetic code through the regular use of weed, and with 25 plus million people in that prime baby-making age range using pot on a regular basis, this should grossly concern literally everyone. A few others seemingly less important than mutating ourselves, but still of some importance, uh, from 2021 found on IIHS.org headline, Crash Rates Jump in Wake of Marijuana Legalization, New Studies Show. Quote, Crash rates spiked with the legalization of recreational marijuana use and retail sales in California, Colorado, Nevada, Oregon, and Washington, a new study by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, the IIHS, and another by the affiliated Highway Loss Data Institute, HLDI, show. But don't worry, hospital visits aren't really up. (laughs) Just accidents. And who really cares if, you know, if you have a car accident? No big deal, right? But apparently Minnesota is getting ready for legalization starting in August, found on CBSNews.com headline, Law Enforcement on Alert for Impaired Drivers as Marijuana Becomes Legal. Plan to Boost Drug Experts. So you remember our hypothesis, marijuana use is harmful to self or others? Well, clearly, I think very clearly by all appearances, even if 90% of what I cited was proven to be wrong, marijuana use is harmful to yourself. Others comes in with an impaired driver's increased accidents and mutating your offspring. It seems like the data is correlating with the hypothesis. And further recall, if the hypothesis is proven correct, or if it's at least trending that way, needing more study, we shouldn't legalize the use of marijuana. The problem now is that we can't put the horse back in the barn. That sucker is gone. So why would all these states legalize marijuana when there appears to be a connection between weed and harder drug use, and it clearly causes harm to self and clearly causes harm to others? Well, let me present you with some other words that you might be familiar with. Abortion, gay marriage, transgender affirmation, conversion therapy bans, green energy, bans on gas stoves, dryers, water heaters, and gasoline generators, plastic recycling, electric vehicle mandates, and the COVID so-called vaccine. We don't do science anymore. We make decisions. And those decisions aren't based on scientific studies, data, and analyses. Those decisions are based on emotion, political expediency, power, control, and money. Science tells us aborting a baby is murdering a human. Science tells us that marriage isn't a thing that gays can do as they can't fulfill one of the key points of marriage. Science would tell us that you can't be the gender you're not because you feel like it, even if you mutilate yourself. And the list goes on. Science, real science, real data does not agree with any of these decisions and policies. We are a society disconnected from truth. Even worse, we're a society that's disconnected from searching for, finding, or even caring about the truth. We are literally being run on emotion and financial gain. God has granted humanity, as part of his common grace, the scientific method, the ability to logically evaluate a given scenario and arrive at a decision. We have so disconnected from and rebelled against our creator that we now even refuse to utilize the common grace gift of logic. This would be akin to us holding our breath because God created air and I don't need his air. This would be a fascinating thing to watch, not in a positive way, just in a sheer disbelief way, if we weren't living in the middle of it and reaping the consequences of it. I mean, who would have taken the bet that humanity over the last, say, 100 years, but especially over the last 40, would just eschew logic and real science, treating it as baseless alchemy, while elevating feelings and faux empathy to levels of authority. It's simply amazing. Okay, 
Now I want to come back to my caveat. Medicinal marijuana or cannabis or THC-containing oils or whatever. In light of all we've covered, and I have no doubt that this is the most rapid-fire, comprehensive collection of cannabis-related data you've ever heard, and all the links to the various articles and studies are in the notes if you want to dig deeper. So in light of all we've discussed, should we pursue medicinal uses for cannabis? In my opinion, we absolutely should. But we should do it using information we already know, we should do it carefully and scientifically, and we should follow the data rather than following emotion, empathy, and the almighty dollar. All, or we can at least agree that nearly all medications have side effects. The question is, is the side effect more acceptable than what's trying to be addressed? So taking into consideration the studies that have been done, there may be a use for medicinal marijuana in some or various forms, and I think we would do well to be open to that possibility, especially if we're fine with all the other forms of drugs and medications currently being used in the medical community. Just because we've labeled something as an illegal drug doesn't mean it can't have real legitimate uses if used correctly. Were you aware that cocaine is actually used medicinally in the ear, nose, and throat specialty as a topical anesthetic and vasoconstrictive or blood vessel constricting effects? This helps in nasal surgeries and controlling nosebleeds, for instance. But this is strictly controlled, dissimilar to the Hunter Biden method of just jamming as much up his nose as he possibly can. So should cannabis be considered for medicinal use? Well, I think so. Do I have confidence that the scientific medical community will evaluate the applications and side effects scientifically? Eh. As with everything, don't discount things just because you always have. I grew up in a no-drinking, no-smoking, no-dancing, no-music-with-a-beat church. Now, don't get me wrong. It was a great church. It was full of great people, and I'm happy for the upbringing I had. It was just a very traditional Northern Baptist church. Since then, I've had to come to the place where I don't consider drinking alcohol a sin, but getting drunk is. I don't drink alcohol. I don't think I would feel right drinking alcohol. That would violate my conscience. But I don't believe that drinking, not getting drunk, is a sin. I don't consider smoking a sin, although, again, I'd never do it, and I'd be just fine if nobody ever did it. It kind of stinks. I do consider addiction a sin, but would that extend beyond nicotine and legal or illegal drugs into, say, caffeine, sugar, food, or name any of the infinite things that any of us are addicted to in some degree? So illegal drugs, because of their addictive nature, I believe can't be utilized without eventually placing them above everything else, making the drug your idol. That's a sin. But medicinal use is very different than recreational use when done and controlled properly. So I think it's at least worthwhile to pursue carefully medicinal cannabis, even when our hypotheses regarding recreational use are easily proven correct enough through basic Google searches to say that we should have never legalized or decriminalized recreational use of marijuana. Okay, now it's your turn. Let me know what you think. How wrong am I or how right am I? Contact info is in the notes. Go. It seems like everywhere you turn, there's someone that's trying to tell you how to make more money or save money. And especially these days, although we have this stellar economy, and don't you dare say differently, with infinity jobs to be had, a buttload, which is a valid measurement, of extra cash for everyone, practically free everything. For some reason, the fear mongers out there, the Biden haters, are trying to tell us how to make, save, and or invest money at a point in our history where money is more of a concept than a reality. But what I haven't heard enough about, and what I definitely haven't tried yet in order to stretch my hard-earned, my earned, my received dollar, 
is delusion. <laughs> well, that's about to change. Found on AOL.com, yes, that's still a thing, headline, Girl Math. The TikTok trend where young women justify their spending isn't a lifestyle or a delusion. It's proof that Gen Z is starting to believe money isn't real. Uh, okay, well, I could actually jump on board with these so-called TikTok girls, which would probably result in some sort of a rash or disease merely through association, but I grossly digress, that money isn't real. I mean, you're with me, right? The country is currently, what, 80 gazillion dollars in debt? Every man, woman, and child would have to pay $36 billion in order to pay off this debt. The government keeps trying to use a shovel to tax its way out of a hole that it keeps digging via spending with that huge mining machine thing that we've all seen pictures of with absolutely no hope in sight. We're literally a country that is living on monopoly money, and eventually this whole thing will crumble. But... As is our example by the mummified corpses representing us in Congress, as well as the vegetable-in-chief, we just let the grandkids worry about that, right? I got mine, baby. But no, that's not what's being said in this article. In fact, I'd say for most of us, especially if we aren't on a super tight budget, those of us that have even just a little wiggle room left, we're as delusional as the TikTok girls, regardless of the clear disparity in IQ levels. And as I type that, I discover that I apparently don't know how to spell disparity, so who am I to talk? Wait, this is my podcast. I can say what I want, right? I'll just edit that out, and you'll be none the wiser. <laughs> Boom. So what exactly is going on here? And is this really a Gen Z phenomenon? The first paragraph pretty much sums it up, and before you roll your eyes or guffaw heartily, ask yourself, do you do these things? Because it surely can't only be me that can actually think of myself doing this, at least from time to time. Quote, if it's less than $5, it's basically free. If you return an item for a refund, you've made money. If you paid for a vacation months ago, it's free by the time you go on it. And if you buy something using cash you found in your pocket, it's also free. The article written by a female... Uh, by biology. That's my assumption per the name given. I, I have no idea how she identifies herself. I also don't really care as biology is biology. No, the author says, quote, that's the bizarre logic of girl math, the latest TikTok trend in which women rationalize their spending in illogical ways. Now, she classifies this as one of the girl trends going around and further attributes this to women only, but I'd argue that this state of mind isn't just in women. I'd maintain that all of us do this in various ways at varying price points. She says that this appears to be an emerging attitude that money isn't real, therefore spending is easily justifiable. Now, in a postmodern world where your truth is truth because you define it as true to you, I'd agree that the concept of money not being real, if that's your truth, is correct, because you've decided it's correct. There are indications across the country to be sure that money is nothing more than a concept, maybe a burden, maybe something that evil rich people have because they steal it from the rest of us. We see the thugs and mobs rushing into everything from high-end clothing, jewelry, and accessory stores to the dollar stores, just calmly collecting their wants and walking out with them. The parent corporations, the store owners, and our government overlords have told us 
to all just let it happen. It's not worth risking injury or your life to stop them. And heaven forbid that we're allowed to defend ourselves via our founding father stated inalienable Second Amendment right, even if you're a trained security guard. No, money is just a concept. But it's not, right? I mean, someone needs to pay for that stolen merchandise. Now, sure, it may be insurance companies, but they aren't there to lose money, so their rates go up, which means you and I, you know, the schmucks that still believe in honesty, well, we end up paying more for our stuff to offset the increased costs to whichever company is standing by watching their junk walk out the door. What about the now two-year fight to forgive student loans or some of the loans or loans for some or whatever? Well, despite the insistence by the undead in Congress, the government isn't just not collecting money. They literally act like that money never existed, but it did exist. It used to be in our paychecks, ever so briefly, until taxes took their cut. Then it went into the government coffers, also briefly, and was paid out to various institutions of higher learning, so-called, which is highly debatable. The schools received tangible dollars that came from you and I. The students and parents promised to pay that back to us by putting that money back in the government bank account. But since that was so long ago, and it's all done via ones and zeros, it's all fake anyway. So just like the TikTok girls, that wasn't real. So who cares? But I care. I mean, you can look up the total tax revenue for our government. You can look at your federal taxes paid. You can find the amount that they want to just forgive. And then through a couple simple calculations, you'll find that you're paying back maybe a few cents of the overall loan forgiveness. But that's a few cents I'd rather have rattling around somewhere in the center console of my car than to give it to someone I don't know for something I don't agree with. And don't get me wrong, I'm a fan of charity. I give to a number of charities regularly and to various other needs from time to time. I just don't like to be forced to be charitable to what someone else feels is important. That's not charity, that's theft. But again, that money wasn't real. Physical bills, that's not what it was, and it was a long time ago, or, or not, or whatever. It's all funny money anyway, it's not real. To most people, that's the government's money, not ours. So, whatever. If you remember back when Obama and Romney were battling for president, I mean, at the time, who knew that they were actually the same party, the American Socialist Uniparty, or whatever they want to call themselves, the Obama phone was a topic of conversation. As one clearly uneducated black welfare recipient, and I describe her this way, as this is exactly the demographic the Democrats have enslaved for centuries, and still are, because they absolutely hate blacks and want nothing more than to use them until they can destroy them, this woman was gung-ho to keep Obama, quote, in president, since if you were on welfare, social security, on food stamps, or had a disability, you got a free Obama phone. And they were nice phones. Not quite the top of the line for the time, but close. And it's because they deserved it. For something, I guess. Uh, for votes, <laughs> most likely. Uh, back in 2009, in Detroit, about 20,000 people lined up for free money, which was a lottery, essentially, to get your utilities, rent, etc. paid for by the government, by Obama himself. Now, one lady again, an uneducated black welfare recipient, was asked about this money. Reporter Ken Rogolsky from WJR in Michigan briefly interviewed this woman. Why are you here? To get some money. What kind of money? 
Obama money? Where's it coming from? Obama. And where did Obama get it? I don't know. His stash. I don't know. I don't know where he got it from, but he given it to us to help us. Now, I know where he got it. He got it from me, and he got it from you, but this was just fractions of a cent for us. I mean, that's that's nothing. And it was just there for these recipients, so it's free. And the government has massive amounts of cash, plus they get it from us, so it's not real to them. See, this money-isn't-real thing has been going on for a long time. Look at Ukraine. We've given them somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 billion in aid and equipment since this war started, and probably way more than that, all to try to cover up the Biden crime family illegal dealings in Ukraine, because let's be honest, that's literally our only interest in keeping Russia out of that country. If it wasn't for that, we couldn't possibly care less. But that's government money, not our money. Except, no, again, that's our personal dollars and cents from our tax dollars, from our wages, from our trading our labor for money that's going over there. At the end of 2022, the average personal income for Americans was about $63,000. If you made $63,000 per year, you would have to work nearly 1.6 million years to make $100 billion. That, to me, seems suboptimal. But again, we don't think about it. The government doesn't think about it. Ukraine doesn't care, as the oligarchs just get richer by pilfering our A dollars. It's all funny money. It's not real to us. Now, these are big dollars changing hands. But back to our article. We do this on an individual level, too. The author gives an example of a caller into a New Zealand radio show who justified 5,600 total dollars spent to see Taylor Swift, arguing that it was really free for her to spend the $5,600. See, she was going to go to Sydney to go to all four back-to-back-to-back-to-back Swift concerts. So she's flying round-trip to Sydney one time to see four concerts. So she's not spending money on three additional round-trip tickets, just the one. So she's saving the cost of the three round-trip tickets that she's not buying. That's $1,800 in savings right there. She's subletting her apartment for those nights also, so she's not paying for those nights that she's not in her apartment, just the hotel she's staying in. So she's making money there. Well, I mean, and not making money. I mean, she still has to pay her landlord, but at least this one has a shred of reality to her financial story. And then, and this is my favorite, she figures that she's going to take various videos of the concerts. If she watches those videos 1,000 times, those are essentially free concerts. And if you don't spend money on a concert, it's free. In fact, it's the same as money in your pocket. Yep, you heard that right. Now, The pressure you're feeling in your head is your brain trying to escape through your ears and run away. Don't let it do that. You'll need it as we get to the end of this segment. Oh, and the experience of seeing Swift in concert and being able to tell her kids about it, maybe even grandkids, well, that's priceless. So, uh, so there you go. Uh, $5,600 to see Taylor Swift four nights in a row. I know that it's obviously not the popular opinion, but... I wouldn't spend $56 for front row seats and VIP backstage passes to a Taylor Swift concert. I mean, as a guy, I recognize that she's obviously attractive. 
As a person with ears, she's clearly got talent. As a logical human, her music is terrible in general, and her dancing around in a bedazzled swimsuit is honestly, it's kind of gross. But here we are again, <laughs> digressing. Uh, this is eerily similar to what probably all of us have joked about in the past. If the sale is 25% off, well, if I buy four of them, it's 100% off, and that's free. So I'd be stupid not to buy at least four, or if I buy more, I'm making money at that point. <laughs> the more you spend, the more you save. Yeah, but also the more you spend. But it's that last part that we seem to conveniently forget about. I mean, if I spend $1,000 to save $100, for some of us, maybe most of us, that's a hundred bucks I can spend on something else. But the reality is I'm down $1,000, not up 100. The author then goes into what we all know, what I've already stated. The federal government has ensured that we don't believe money to be real. They have infinite debt as they spend on everything. Only the most naive among us believe that we have any gold left at all that could back even a portion of the dollar bills currently in circulation. And money just isn't a real thing anymore to most of us. As one TikToker said, quote, with knowledge of the fact that money isn't real and the economy is all made up, can we all agree that people who studied econ in college basically got theater degrees? And um, yes, we can kind of agree on that. The article wraps up by speaking about how this trend, even if it's done jokingly, is dangerous. The more the mindset is justified and spoken about, the more it will become normalized and accepted. And then they attack the obvious patriarchy inherent in the system. You know, how, quote, men are told to invest and grow wealth, and women are told we are dumb and can't be trusted to secure or manage a bag. I mean, really? And apparently men spend more in general, but that's simply because big mean men hold most of the money, which by implication means that women are abused or kept down or something. I don't know. So what do we do with this? Well, although this girl math thing is kind of a half joke kind of trend thing, it really isn't. And it has nothing to do with girls. It's, it's our mindsets as Americans. I'm not sure all mankind suffers from this delusion. If I had to guess, I'd assume that the more affluent you are, the more you succumb to this mathing issue. So the first world nations are probably stuffed with humanity that has this fake money perception problem. Now, the Bible clearly speaks on money. In fact, it speaks quite a lot on money. I'd say the two most well-known verses would be the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, although this is frequently misstated as the love of money is the root of all evil. Probably not terribly wrong, but still not what the Bible reads. And you can't serve both God and money. But this so-called girl math, the view that money isn't real, which is how many of us view our money at various times, is far from being evil in itself, and it's definitely not making an idol out of money. It's just careless at best, potentially delusional, if this is your regular mindset, like our Swifty from earlier. This is a big reason why Dave Ramsey has made a very, very good living doing what he does. I mean, Ramsey doesn't do anything special. He mostly just applies common sense to the management of money. Admittedly, I'm more Ramsey-ish, and if you ever listen to his show, you'll know that that's frowned upon by his budgetary highness. I agree that his plan has worked for many people. I agree that his plan will work for nearly everyone if it's stuck to, although I'm not as confident about the retirement investing thing these days, but time will tell. I just choose to not fully follow his plan for various reasons. That said, I do budget my money, but I'm not mega strict on it, mostly because of my personal situation. I haven't had to be, although I've tightened things up quite a bit as of late. 
And because of that, I have months where, in my mind, I haven't spent as much on certain things as I have in reality. But I also have months where I don't spend what I budgeted in a certain category, which means I have free money to spend on whatever I'd like. But although technically I do, no, really I don't. That money, per my finances and per Ramsey's guidance, could be used and should be used elsewhere. A well-defined, designated elsewhere, if you were to ask Dave. Well, no matter if you're a Dave Ramsey fan or if you can't stand him and think he's crazy, the fact is Ramsey is nothing but a purveyor of reality. His system, his ministry, his whatever you want to call it, is based on the fact that we need to exist with our feet firmly grounded in the reality of the life we're existing in. As much as the world derides the Bible as silly or simplistic or fantastical, useless, or even hateful and evil— it is literally the only belief system that is grounded and can ground us in reality. And it does this by taking the definition of reality out of human hands and control. All other belief systems, including those that claim non-belief, which is by definition a belief system, base their beliefs on human wants, desires, lusts, punishments, and rewards. This is why when you boil it down, all other religions have a reward system that's some combination of rest or leisure, food, riches, and or sex. Christianity, by and large, is counter to man's system. The difference between systems of God and not God are obvious, although perplexing to those who have not had their hearts regenerated. Or as the Bible states, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And also, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is one reason why mankind doesn't like Christianity. It doesn't feel good, because we want what we want, and what we want is for our lusts to be fulfilled. The Bible, from a worldly view, is deemed to be restrictive and uncaring, but it actually grounds us in the reality of the world in which we exist. When looking at laws given in the Bible, the rules that we're given to live by, even in this age of grace, and yes, I know that not all Old Testament laws are applicable to us today, but those rules, regulations, and requirements are there less for restriction of our rights, more for protection of our bodies, minds, and souls. I'm convinced that these days we're seeing the ramifications at an exponential rate of leaving the only source of true truth, thus leaving a firm grounding in reality, placing us in the precarious position of floating around in a sphere of relativism and post-modernity. This girl math is nothing but a microcosm of what we're currently seeing in our country and in many places around the world today. Money isn't real. Theft isn't real. Sex isn't real. Gender isn't real. Pedophiles are simply misunderstood. Grooming and molesting children is definitely not grooming or molesting children. Killing babies prior to birth is just removing a clump of cells that are definitely in the form of and growing and functioning as a living baby. The immune system doesn't work like it always has. Masks, which are making a comeback somehow, absolutely do what they absolutely can't possibly do. Viruses respect one-way aisles and seated diners. A massive spike in heart-related deaths definitely isn't because of that. Don't even think about that being the cause. Speaking of that, it's perfectly safe, regardless of the manufacturer's own data showing that it's not actually safe. Medications that made people well aren't allowed to be used to make people well. A riot 
is an insurrection, unless the riot is nothing more than a peaceful protest. We don't know what the correct temperature of the globe should be, but we definitely know it's what it is currently. Man is destroying the planet despite no real scientific data proving that, and our electrical grid that can't handle the current peak loads in the summer or winter will definitely be just fine when we double, triple, or more that load all day, every day. Need I go on? Romans 12.2 tells us that we are not to be conformed to this world, this world which is currently living in an ever-increasing delusion, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. In Job 38.36, while God is in the process of not answering Job's question of why me, states, quote, Who has given wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? The implication being, of course, God. God is the arbiter and revealer of wisdom and understanding. In Proverbs, speaks about wisdom 61 times in 58 verses, depending on your translation. We know that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and Proverbs expands on that basic truth, including the fact that God founded the earth by wisdom and established the heavens by discernment. I mean, even God, who can do what he wants, who can perform miracles as desired, exists in the realm of wisdom, discernment, and reality. We, as a species, are choosing to walk farther and farther away from reality. We're calling foolishness wisdom and wisdom foolishness. We're calling delusion reality and reality delusion. And we're calling good evil and evil good. And as Isaiah 5.20 states, quote, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. If you look at our current situation, woe would probably be a good way to describe it. All that said, believe it or not, I'm not all doom and gloom. I can find the humor in watching a short video displaying the delusion of people trying to justify girl math, unless it's someone I'm personally trying to interact with explaining how this reasoning is nonsense, in which case I can definitely physically feel the violence that the delusion is literally inflicting upon me to my very core. I also fully understand that we all, from time to time, lose touch with bits of reality in various ways. But on a macro level, I have to believe that the way the people in the days of Noah were described is what we're rapidly degrading to because we refuse to eschew delusion, cling to reality, and pursue the true truth found only in the Bible. I believe that despite the overwhelming percentage of those claiming to be Christian, despite the large number of churches across the country, the number of people, like hopefully you and I, that are grounded in truth, that are grounded in reality, is very small. Sadly, a large number of churches these days are clearly and rapidly sliding into a land of delusion, disconnecting from reality, ignoring wisdom, and misleading their flock into the false wisdom of the minefield of the enemy. So it's left to you and I, and fortunately for us, God. We must grasp hold of reality, refusing to let anyone pry reality, truth, and wisdom from our grip. There are those that are searching, reaching through the darkness of this world, desperately looking for a glimmer of light, the hope of truth. We need to be prepared to be God's instrument, if he so chooses, that's used to lead them by the hand into the light of reality. This world may be on the way out, return of Jesus may be imminent, or it may be centuries or millennia before Christ comes to claim his bride. Either way, our job remains unchanged. 
So although we can laugh at the apparent insanity presented to us 30 to 60 seconds at a time, we can't lose sight of who and what we are, of where we live, of the condition of the world around us, our calling and our job, and of the necessity for us to live in reality grounded in the truth found only in the scriptures. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Okay, well, we've reached a point where something needs to be done. I'll be the first to admit that one of my main struggles is self-control. That and patience. (laughs) But that's what sanctification is, right? I mean, we don't need to be masters of all fruits of the Spirit, but we should have them all in various amounts, and we should be working at improving them, right? Here we are at goal update number 29. I saw a Mimi... Yes, I know it's mean, but I like to say it the wrong way. I saw a Mimi the other day. It was something asking, how's life? And I say, it's on track. And the image is an obviously destroyed, just decimated track on the side of a river at about a 45 degree angle on the bank where the ground had given away and kind of slumped over. And the caption says, this is the track. And uh, yeah, I, I totally get that. Uh, but for the grace of God, go I. Or go you, I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm actually in it. Now I need to get out of this uh, again, which, um, which is my custom, as it turns out. So when it comes to diet and exercise, here's the thing. Action needs to be taken. You know, without looking at this every week, I don't know that I would really notice that, but I just don't feel well. Right? I mean, I can tell that the glasses are a little tighter on the head, It's hard to think of yourself having a fat head, but here we are. The blood pressure seems to be up a little bit more. Now, I haven't checked it. I'm just guessing, but it just feels like it might be. Pants are getting a little tighter again. It's not unmanageable, but it's definitely more than it needs to be. So I don't actually know what I was on weigh-in Tuesday this last Tuesday, as in my rush to get to work on time... I neglected to weigh myself. Why? Well, because I'm not doing it on a regular basis, so I'm not thinking about it in the morning. My best guess as to where I am is somewhere between the 196.6 from last week and 200 pounds, but I don't really know. This week, I should get a better read of it. What's funny is that uh, 200 pounds is high for a guy of about 5'8", maybe a little shorter as I've gotten older, so we'll say 5'7 to 5'8". I don't look like I'm 200 pounds, and my fat-to-muscle-to-frame combo really doesn't make it as bad as it could be if I had, say, no muscle tone, but I feel it. In the past, I'd probably just ignore it for a while and just kind of get used to how I feel again and just kind of keep on going the wrong direction, but I can't do that this time. I really need to get back at it. So here's the plan. I said I would have some sort of a plan this week. Here's the plan. I want to be 175 by the end of December, or really by about Christmas, essentially. And uh, yes, I plan on pigging out over the Christmas break. I've set up my goal tracking spreadsheet to look at my current weight each week, look at my goal of 175, do the math automatically, and tell me what I'd need to lose on average for the remaining weeks in order to hit the goal. 
So right now, I'd need to lose about 1.6 pounds per week to hit my new goal. If I end up being 200 pounds on, say, this Tuesday, weigh-in day, it would go to 1.7 pounds per week. Now, those are aggressive, but they're doable numbers, I think. Now, I'd say that anything over two pounds per week is probably getting out of the realm of possibility for me. Not impossible, but approaching it. This means as much as I hate dieting and I hate exercising and uh, wow, do I ever, I need to get after it. So all that said, I'm in the red this week, might be in the red next week, don't really know, but we need to get back into the green after that. Now, I'd love to just go to the doc and ask him for some of those magic pills that everyone's taking to lose some weight, but no, I refuse to take a pill for something that I can do naturally. I mean, this is like asking someone or paying someone to mow your lawn. I can still do it. I'm going to still do it. Okay, moving on. Let's do the quick stuff first. Devotions on track. Green. We're moving through Exodus again, currently through the book of the law, which is made up of chapters 21 to 23. Pages read. Not quite where I'd like to be for the week, but 60 pages read over the last week, bringing the total to 4,898 pages. I'm happy with the progress overall. I actually really like the current book I'm reading. I just haven't had the time in combination with not being focused on reading it, but this is still green. Okay, we're okay there. As for Bible reading, on track for last week with five out of seven days, digging in like I want to, the way I want to. That brings my goal percentage to 80% overall. Now, I've got this as a light green for now, although if I want to bring that percentage up, obviously I need to go in a, above and beyond my weekly goal. Again, it's a matter of time and energy. I mean, doing a deep dive study as well as reading a deeper book, it isn't something that can be done when you're tired or you're not focused because of whatever's going on in life at the time or whatever. Now, all that said, that's going well. I'm finding some interesting stuff as I read, at least I think it's interesting. And then at this point, in the chronological reading, I've almost made it through Job. And in the in-depth study portion, I've almost made it through Genesis 2. That's a couple months to get through the first two chapters of Genesis. Like I said, we're going deep. So, what did I find this week that maybe you'd like to ponder? All right. In Genesis 2.6, the Bible speaks of how the earth was watered and no rain had fallen. We know that it was watered from below, but how? Well, curiously, if you look at some of the main translations, the NIV and the new LSB call it a stream. The NLT calls it a spring. But the ESV, KJV, NKJV, NASB, and the YLT, that's the Young's Literal Translation, which I really like, I would never want to read that as my primary, but I really like it, well, all of those call it a mist. The Hebrew word, which is word H108 in Strong's Dictionary, is eighth. It's spelled E-D and pronounced eighth, sort of. And it means a fog, a mist, or a vapor. It's only used twice in the Old Testament, once here and once in Job, where Elihu was speaking of God being the maker of rain, which I could see rain being more of a mist or a vapor as opposed to a stream. So, why do a few Bible translations translate it as stream or spring? And I don't know. It's something to think about. Incidentally, in my notes that I'm taking, I'm notating things where I want to do a little deeper dive eventually, or things I have questions on so that I can go back to them later. And I don't know when later is, but, but that's what I'm doing. All right. Notice that in Job, 
the way that Job speaks, and he speaks a lot in there, he knows that God is in control of his affliction, as in God is sovereign and ultimately responsible for the turmoil that Job is going through. Notice that he didn't blame Satan, as if Satan is the bringer of bad and God really can't do anything about it. Job knew that God is completely sovereign, good or bad, blessing or curse, regardless of the method or deliverer of the bad whatever it is, God is sovereignly controlling everything. I say that because I think that Christians in general hold God to be completely sovereign, except where it may not make us feel as good as we'd like, and then we make excuses. Well, Job was very confident who was in control of all of the stuff that we on the outside, would look at and call bad. Let's go back to Genesis 2. Notice the hands-on approach that God took with man, with Adam and Eve. He formed man. He breathed into him. He planted a garden. He placed man. He caused him to sleep. He took a rib. He closed the flesh, and then he fashioned woman. Through the rest of creation, from what we're told in the Bible, God spoke things and they were. We generally think of God as forming man. We've talked about that a bunch of times. But the care that God took to create man, create woman, and create the environment, I mean, he could have thought or willed or spoke all of that, but he was personally invested in this creation. No matter what we're told, humanity is a very special creation. Each and every person, an image-bearer, personally formed by God. Moving back to Job, this event likely took place after the flood. This entire Job story took place after the flood, somewhere between the Tower of Babel and Abram's appearance on the scene. That seems to be the agreed-upon location. This would place the event about 350-ish years after the flood. In that time, three married couples had a bunch of kids, who had kids, who had kids, and according to Job 28, Major industrial-type advances were already in full swing by that time. Humanity was never a brainless caveman. By the time of Job, man was mining for silver, for gold, for iron. They were smelting copper. All of this apparently deep underground as they were able to bring light to the darkness, and they were apparently rappelling into these mines, and on top of that, they were damming rivers to look for riches or other discoveries. These were smart people. All right, moving on. Job, the book of Job, makes it sound like Job himself was one of the city elders that held the morality of the city together. Now, we know he was an elder of some prestige, right? Some, he had some riches and some, I don't know, power or whatever in the city, but it sounded like he was someone of, of a lot of prestige. But it sounds like he was kind of the moral and ethical glue for this city, When he was afflicted and no longer able to take his seat at the city gate, he says that the justice was undone, that security was uprooted, and mercy was no longer maintained. Well, Job in chapter 29 speaks about what he did before being afflicted this way. If you're curious, look it up and read it. He lists a large list of things. But on a larger level, isn't this the fear of most men? Maybe most people. I'm not sure. I can only speak as a man. What will my legacy be? Is what I'm doing important? If I die tomorrow, will anyone find what I've been doing important enough to continue on doing it? And to be honest, we really shouldn't be concerned with that. That's not really up to us. And when we move on or pass on, that's really up to God if someone else is going to maintain what we've done or 
keep doing what we've what we've we've been doing the whole time. We're not to be worried about it anymore. But we can see that apparently the city started to fall apart, morally, without the strength of Job. As the book opens, Job was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Apparently he was a moral rock, a cornerstone for this society. And finally, back into Genesis. God didn't need to open the side of Adam to take a rib. Was there a scar there when he closed him up? Uh, and if so, was this so when Adam awoke, he knew and he had a reminder that woman was taken out of man, flesh of his flesh? I don't know. Incidentally, in Ephesians, where Paul tells us to love your wife as your own flesh, quite literally, the woman is your own flesh. Okay, that should do it for this update. I'm not going to speculate how good of an update I'll have next week, not holding my breath, but after that, things will be back on track. They will be, because they must be. And that does it. Okay, bye. <laughs>